Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis um, once again. My name is Tracy Morgan, and I am, as always, your host, S. And today we'll be speaking uh, with Muriel Dimon, and she's joined by uh, Stephen Hartman. And Muriel Dimon uh, was the editor, is the editor of a most recent publication called With Culture in Mind, Psychoanalytic Stories, published by Rutledge. Stephen Hartman is one of the contributors to this very fascinating collection of psychoanalytic stories, as they say. And this collection grew out of a writing group that Dimon runs. I think she runs several here in the city. And it's a writing group full of clinicians, psychoanalytically trained, I think primarily all from the NYU postdoc. So maybe uh, they have a bit of a relational bent, and they uh, began to share their work and found that they were interested in the culture of the clinical setting, culture in the clinical setting, cultural difference in the clinical setting, and began to write what is unique about this collection. It is a different form of psychoanalytic writing. It's not quite neither case study nor theory per se, but actually the intersection of theoretical ideas, many of those ideas coming out of critical theory and cultural studies, and the admixture of those ideas to uh, to the clinical setting. At There are three distinct sections in this book, and at the end of each section, a renowned psychoanalyst comments on the writings. Uh, so we get to hear um, new voices in psychoanalysis, new clinicians, younger people in the field, and more seasoned analysts uh, such as uh, Jessica Benjamin, Susie Warbach, who we just interviewed a couple weeks ago, and Andrew Samuels all comment on what it is that they've read in this unique piece. Dr. Dimon is an adjunct clinical professor of psychology at the NYU postdoc, and she's also an editor at uh, Studies in Gender and Sexuality. And Stephen Hartman, uh, Dr. Hartman is uh, in the faculty of the Psychoanalytic Institute of Northern California. He's in private practice here in the city, in New York City. He's on the faculty of the Stephen Mitchell Center for Relational Psychoanalysis. I'm an associate editor, psychoanalytic dialogues, contributing editor to studies in gender and psychoanalysis. Both Dimon and Hartman have interesting backgrounds in that while they're trained as analysts, Hartman uh, has, I believe, a master's degree. Uh, let me see here. Yes, a master's uh, degree from the politics department, Princeton. And he uh, also studied anthropology and political science as an undergraduate. And Dimon, many might know her also as an anthropologist. And she began in anthropology, and since her advent into the field of psychoanalysis, um, her writing has uh, sort of taken the <laughs> the field by storm. Um, she's very prolific, uh, sort of like uh, the Stanley Aronowitz of uh, contemporary psychoanalysis. And she's a beautiful writer and did a wonderful job editing this collection. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome them both to talk to us today at New Books in Psychoanalysis. 
Hi, welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. Um, we're saying hello today to um, Muriel Dimon and Stephen Hartman, and we're going to discuss with them um, their most recent publication, a very exciting book, um, With Culture in Mind, Psychoanalytic Stories, uh, published by Rutledge. Hello, you guys there? Hi. Hi. Hey, hi, hi. Hi. So, listen, I wanted to ask um, the first question that comes to mind, and I have many, is... Um, uh, what prompted um, the creation, because this book really is a creation, it's, it's stories and it's commentary by um, renowned um, analysts, um, what prompted the creation of this book? And, and by that I'm thinking about, do you have the sense that um, the profession of psychoanalysis um, needs to begin to incorporate um, more thoroughly thinking and more sophisticated thinking about culture in the clinical setting? So what I was going to say was that it, it does need to do that, but it, there's a, an odd way in which it, it needs to um, incorporate thinking about what's already there, that is, culture is already in the psychoanalytic setting. It's just that psychoanalysis hasn't had a, a, a stance, a, a vantage point on which to um, reflect on it. Mm-hmm. So culture is always present in anything that we're doing and anything that we're thinking. Um, and then the question becomes, how do you focus on which particular aspects of it are really important in any given clinical case? Stephen? Yeah, of course. You know, I would, I, your question's um, spot on, Tracy, because there's really, but there's, there's sort of two parts, right? Like mm-hmm. what prompted the creation of the book and why a book about culture in the clinical settings, you know, in a sense. And, um, I, 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 but the second question first, you know, I, I, I com- agree with Muriel completely. Culture is already there, and the problem is that psychoanalysis and particularly psychoanalytic writers have treated culture as an add-on, mm-hmm. something to be aware of, sensitive to, to take into consideration. And um, in our group, there was a sense uh, led by Muriel and, and Muriel's work um, that, you know, that that attitude is an unsophisticated way of thinking about the psyche itself um, because culture is always already present in the mind. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you know, the relationship between mind and society is very uh, recursive and invested one. Mm-hmm. Um, when she, so that's, I think, where that, the, even the name of the book comes from, The Culture in Mind. Sure. Well, you know, I actually had some notes before me. Um, I was kind of, I've been going through um, old emails, and I found a, an email from one of the, the members of the group, Orna Goranek. Um, um, she wrote to me when I was sending around my introduction to the book yeah. to the writers to get everybody's critique and so on. And she said this interesting thing. She said, as I recall our group development, we started off with only some of us interested in the socio-political. And then she goes on to say, I think it is fascinating how, over time, both the force and passion of some of our arguments, combined with my particular background and interests and so on, bred and spread into the group. Mm-hmm. And she says this speaks to group process, but it also speaks to the power and importance of the socio-political lens. She says once you get it, there's no turning back because you can't help but see it. I, I think I, one of the questions I was going to ask was, did people come to the group who, um, to the writing group who were specifically interested in the intersection of psychoanalysis and culture? And I guess the answer is no, but that it it, uh, it did become um, 
sort of uh, paramount, of paramount importance. Um, I was wondering, how, how would you define culture? I mean, this is a, a tricky term, <laughs> a slippery term, right? I mean, what, what's, I, I, mean I, I can't define it. I'm, also, I'm a doctoral student in the um, program in psychoanalysis and culture up in uh, Boston at the Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis, and it's a constant discussion. Like, what do, we mean, what do you mean when you say culture? You know, what, do you guys have a, a way to, to talk about that? Um, for how many hours? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we, maybe we'll have to interview the whole group, um, and we'll just do a lot of hours it's on this. It's a great question. You know, I mean, I, I, I'm going to take one step back and say, you know, back to your question about what prompted the creation of the book, and uh-huh. it's very much also the answer, I think, to, to, to start to answer this question, too. Because, of course, um, we're all people who, for whom um, you know, Muriel is our mentor, and... Um, and Muriel, I don't want to speak for you, Muriel, but Muriel, you know, began her career as an anthropologist, right. as did I, actually. Oh, and, okay. And, um, did I know that? Did I, did I majored in anthropology in college? I can tell you about his CV. He does have a master's in, uh, <laughs> in politics. <laughs> I know. I didn't anyway. Go on, Stephen. Wait. Well, oh, remember, we once had this really funny conversation, I think, walking down Broadway about Marxist anthropology. Oh, God. Yes. Yes. Oh, my goodness. How funny. I was wondering where hegemony was in the book. Anyway. Uh, uh, <laughs> but um, we all... When I basically, this book is a project that came together from our writing group, wanting to do something coherent as a group. And um, in addition to having Muriel as our as our mentor, uh, and, and given Muriel's interest in culture and, and society, our group was a, is a diverse group of people from different cultures, all of whom uh, have had really interesting experiences in the, um, I don't know what you call it, like in the thick of being between cultures. Yeah. And that really came to be very quickly what we all had in common. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily a particular view about what culture is, but being people who were ourselves between cultures in many different kinds of ways. You could really, you can feel the culture when you're between it, that's for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't you think, Muriel? I mean, I think that's a really good point, Stephen, actually, that the awareness of um, culture comes when there's an awareness of difference mm-hmm. in culture. Otherwise, it's like, you know, you're the fish and you're swimming in the water and you don't notice the water. Mm-hmm. But if all of a sudden, or let's say you're in cold water and then there's warm water, then you notice. Right. And yes, so, exactly. And so yeah. I think that's very important. And then we have this diversity within the group. So people are having already that experience. Mm-hmm. of oddness and difference and something to notice and then people have different formations so I was I have a PhD in anthropology and of course the definition of culture there I'm sure it's you know it's always contested but um, you know sort of the sum total of people's ways of living patterns beliefs um, uh, personal religious uh, kinship practices I mean that you know it's that kind of a grab bag definition as opposed to culture with a capital C. Right. right? Um, I, but it's, it's curious because I think as a writer, we, we decided not to go in the direction of saying, well, now what do we exactly really mean by culture? We had something that was good enough, a place at which we all intersected, and then could use that kind of vaguely held notion as a way to think about the clinical work that we were trying to um, uh, convey to the reader. Um, now, I, yeah. Go on. 
I was going to, the other thing that I say in the introduction, and I'll say it here since we're being interviewed, that there was an immediate impetus for the sort of essay that shows up in that book, and that's an idea that Stephen had. And Stephen likes to say, well, this is sort of a product of group process and so on, but he's the one who said, why don't we all write uh, some papers, um, for, put together a panel yeah. for Division 39. Right. And then we all did that, and that became the kind of basis for a new kind of clinical writing. That's what I would say. And and the and the term um, stories is yes. really really a fasc- it's a fascinating choice. And I was thinking um, of other psychoanalytic storytellers like Orbach's The Impossibility of Sex, Yalom's mm-hmm. Love's Executioner, Lindner's The Fifty Minute Hour, and mm-hmm. I thought, wow, this is. These are psychoanalytic stories. Why, why did you um, guys decide to, to use that term? You know, I think we, we settled on stories um, because in a certain sense, each of us, and I think this is probably true for all psychoanalytic writers, wants to tell their own story. And then people tell the stories of others. Mm-hmm. And in our particular group, the the matrix where telling one's own story and telling the story of someone else, where those two things overlap, I think that's where you find what culture is in a certain sense. Oh, how interesting. Um, and we would tell each other our stories and listen to each other's stories and comment on each other's stories, and our own stories would evolve as we were doing it. And so very quickly our writing group became a kind of interesting experience of storytelling. At the same time, all of us felt uh, that we didn't want to write the traditional psychoanalytic clinical paper where, you know, you have a theory and you use the case example to demonstrate your theory. Um, We all wanted the theory to come out of the story rather than the story out of the theory. Well, ab- absolutely, and that, and that's what really um, is is clear here. Um, in for for those who have not read the book yet, when you really understand the development of a theoretical, uh, the analyst development of theory through thinking um, about, um, for lack of a better term, cases, because it's not the traditional case study. I, I mean, I just interviewed Stephen Poser, who wrote this really great piece on um, Monroe, Marilyn Monroe, and Ralph Greenson, and he said exactly mm. that. He said the case study. Uh, that 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 out of think, through thinking about cases, theory develops, and mm-hmm. I thought that was such a wonderful, um, you know, a wonderful point of view, which is clear um, in this book. Um, so one thing I say that though, though, um, Tracy, about that is that the theory emerges from the clinical, from the stories, and I say add that we wrote. I mean, I think stories because it's a different kind of writing. These are highly accessible essays. Mm-hmm. You know, one of my patients is reading them. My brother is reading them. They are completely readable. Yeah. And, you know, once in a while you have sort of, you know, $64 million word. But, does you know, people try to explain them and so on. It really, they read. And they're also stories because they're short. And this was the point of the, the, the format, the, the project of having the group do something coherent mm-hmm. for a panel. So there was a limit on how many pages each person could write. And that was a creative constraint that, that um, 
resulted in these kind of diamond hard, these gem-like pieces, which patient and analyst and clinical and cultural situation were um, delineated with crystalline Crystalline clarity. It's quite quite amazing. Really so. Really amazing. You have to work so much harder to write a short, tiny piece than to tell, you know, a long-winded one. Right. Right. To really get get the the gist of things and the feeling. um, The feeling of it. Yeah, the feeling of it, and uh, and where you know, where, and you can really feel the analyst at work um, thinking, sort of almost in public, practically. Um, yeah. When, when you read the pieces, I wanted to ask why interpolation. Um, I, I was looking for hegemony. I found interpolation, um, and I, I laughed because you know when I think of interpolation, and I don't know if this is how you all. Uh, think of of the word, but I think of uh, for for Althusser, I think he he thought of it as being hailed. Isn't that the idea? Like hailed, mm. you can feel oneself mm-hmm. being hailed, called out to in the street. The police recognizes you and says, "Hey, you," um, kind of thing. And I, I was I was really interested in um, the inclusion of that term um, uh, and and how the um, authors worked with it um, in in the book. Thoughts about interpolation and mm. psychoanalysis? <laughs> uh, Muriel, do you? No, you go, Stephen. Well, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a wonderful question, but it's also a question that tells something interesting about the way our group um, evolved. Uh, in the group, some of us we have very different backgrounds. Some of us had backgrounds that were more political, or some more philosophical. Uh, some were, simp- were were very much, you know, in psychology and so on. But there was this kind of sort of deracinated sensibility among all of us. And I think that um, that deracinated sensibility lent itself very easily to exploring what interpolation is. And I think you're, you know, you're right. I mean, in Althusser, interpolation is the feeling of being hailed. You know, classically, interpolation is when the policeman stops you and points his finger and says, hey, you, right? And you know it's you, right. And you know it's you, but it feels not you. Right. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you were going to say something. That's important, Stephen, adding that. And you know it's not you. You know it's not you, and in that moment, you are someone who you are not. Yep. Yes. And I think um, that experience is something each of us in the group have had as a person, and so we were able to uh, take the idea of interpolation and each run with it in our different ways. You know, for me, and I, I think one of the first papers I presented was this paper um, where I was uh, that I had given at Division Thirty Nine about interpolation and and sexuality, and then Orna started writing about interpolation uh in a very different way and before you knew it we were we were kind of all using this term to describe really deracinated subjectivity i think mm-hmm. that's pretty that really is very very interesting i don't know that we actually uh conceptualized it that way but i think it's it's very useful the the reason for interpolation as opposed to hegemony hegemony was always very powerful but the interpolation lends itself to the simultaneity of uh, the, the sort of psychic and social psychic phenomena and social process. Right. Mm-hmm. You're speaking at once to both of them, and the you know the problem that those of us who have been seeking 
this is tells my age, but the elusive Marx Freud synthesis, we didn't have any concepts mm-hmm. that were able for clinical work to think about both at the same time. Mm. We didn't have it. We, you know, we have, I mean, you can think about objects and you can think about real objects and internal objects and so on, but for sort of um, big scale cultural phenomena and um, sort of micro-psychic phenomena, we don't have any uh, concept that, that faces both ways. And that's one reason that we wanted to, to draw on this, along with, of course, the theory of subjectivity that Althusser offers and how we might utilize that mm-hmm. in psychoanalysis. No, I was going to add to it, just as I think you're right, and I hadn't thought about this part of it, which is that, as we're... As you said, the very first thing um, in this conversation, you know, culture is always already there. And yeah. interpolation captures that in a way that nothing else does. That's right. Mm-hmm. In hegemony, the state is there before the yes. object of hegemony. That's right. right. But in interpolation, it's always already there. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I think we're all, if I hadn't thought about this before, but Muriel, you're leading me to think about it this way. I think we're all a little bit preoccupied with time as well. As, um, interpolation has this temporal quality where time stands still and predates you at the same time. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's, that's uh, fascinating. It's, you know, like all time is now and it, um, yeah. all time was always there. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I think it's really interesting and it's not a surprise to me that you know, uh, in another paper by Orna Goralnik, she develops the idea of interpolation and depersonalization right. as uh, and how these things happen in tandem. And it's it's no surprise to me that the moment when someone says, hey, you, is also the moment when um, you cease to exist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, no, but wait a minute. It's, it's doubled. You do and you don't. Yes, you do and you don't. <laughs> The Althusserian notion is you can't avoid this. And that's the difference between this kind of theory and a theory of social control. Social control is something clamps down on you or there's a mold and you have to fit into it or whatever. It's sort of outside in. But the theory of interpolation says this is how we become subjects. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And one of the things I think that we struggle with in group is is, is to think about how, yes, it's a place we become subjects, but it's not all there is. There's got to be wiggle room, otherwise we couldn't be saying what we're saying. And I could, in one way, I can say that that one is that that one of the projects of the book is to figure out well, where is that wiggle room? Mm. Where right. is that room for this? It's something you could call autonomous or genuine, or you know, I don't know exactly how to put it, but we're in which you're not simply a product of hegemony. And we liked interpolation for that reason. Now there may be other cat, you know, other categories that we can begin to use, I mean, discourse theory and so on helps us. Although let me point out that not everybody in the book is working the interpolation theory. People have are drawn on different kinds of social mm-hmm. and cultural theory in the book. Mm-hmm. That speaks the differences in the group, and I think it's part of what made the group really... Um, um, uh, a second, really, really, you know, produce something really creative and new. 
I just think I like interpolation for precisely the reasons you guys have have described because it uh, it does it, it there's a there's a, a both at once quality and there is yeah. that wiggle room and so I, I find it really a, a a great one so it jumped out at me um, and was sat and it was satisfying and I, I was actually envious I was like well, how come I wasn't in this group I think you're around the corner from my <laughs> office <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna have to give you a call see if I can get in this group all right this wiggle room idea though this wiggle room idea is a really interesting one uh-huh. think about it because in a certain sense wiggle room is what's the difference between a transference deadlock and you know working in the transference right there's like a there's potential space well uh-huh. i think i think that there's a lot of um i was when i was reading this i i thought wow there there's a there's a perceived need for this or an actual need for this um thinking about culture and yet the critique that's offered i think um from people who, from analysts who don't really want to think about culture, is that somehow it could, um, um, I, I, I guess the sense is it could delimit uh, the unconscious and the power and the potentially liberatory power of the unconscious. Um, so that's, uh, you know, are we going to, are we imposing something? Are we bringing something? And what you're saying is it's already there. But I think yeah. there's, there's, a, there's a hesitation. Like, where does the unconscious go when the social comes in? I feel like I've heard that a lot. Um, yeah. Yeah, just certainly. I mean, I, you know, I, yeah, I definitely, well, well, what's the difference between social work and psychoanalysis? Social work certainly is thinking about culture, and then, you know, many analysts would say, yes, but that's imposing ideas in, quote-unquote, the social onto a situation where the pa- where we're interested in the patient's unconscious, right? So, you know, and the hmm. unconscious, is, is the unconscious something that you think of as social, and is the unconscious something that you think of as Actually, this is a question. Is the unconscious something you you think of as impacted um, by culture? Because I think in, in, in you know many different schools of analysis would have very different answers to that, right? Yeah, you mean that, uh, the, the thesis that the unconscious is sort of encapsulated unto itself. Yeah, as a, it's sort of pre, uh, pre-social. It's historical and um, doesn't receive mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. marks of culture. What do you think, Stephen? You know, it's interesting. I just actually, this is um, well-timed. I just this morning was writing a syllabus for a course I'm going to teach and um, about like kind of a triadic unconscious sort mm-hmm. of stuff. And um, and the way I was thinking about it was like, it was like this. First of all, we have to explain that by culture, we don't mean um, an entity uh, like... For instance, a lot of people, when they, they speak about culture, they think of it as uh, the cultural context wherein a person lives, which is ultimately different than the person. Mm-hmm. I live in France, so I am in French culture. Mm-hmm. And, and we're not thinking about culture that way, and nor, I think, would we think about the unconscious that way, mm-hmm. uh, as having some kind of independent, autonomous uh, entity that then is influenced by living in France or who knows what. Mm-hmm. And I think psychoanalysis, I, I don't know if you agree, Muriel. I mean, I, I think that as relational psychoanalysis has evolved, there's a shift away from needing to think about whether or not the unconscious is separate from culture. It just is uh, interimplicated. And it's right. interimplicated. It's it, it's it, and 
And in a certain sense, the question, you know, does the, does this concern with culture muck with the unconscious? It's a completely uninteresting question. It comes. Yes. Yeah, because there's no there's no it, it's 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 tautological it, to imagine that culture could muck with the unconscious like a good said, like a good Lacanian, I suppose, is, is to imagine that, you know, the real. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because the unconscious can only be constructed from cultural elements. Mm-hmm. So I think what's more interesting uh, these days is how when you see um, unconscious processes like depersonalization and, and whatnot, um, how are you seeing the way in which culture infuses the unconscious? I think that's a much more interesting question than does culture muck with the unconscious. Mm-hmm. So, the, so that your your thinking is that the unconscious can be um, what did you say did infused? You say? No, you didn't say infused. Well, infused, yeah. and implicated, implicated, interimplicated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. I think this is key. You know, mm-hmm. if um. For one thing, I mean, if we think with Sam Gerson that there's something called a relational unconscious, then we're actually already implying that there's got an interimplication between the, uh, the psychic interior of one person and the inner subjective space of another with with another. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're talking about that, then you have to be talking about the presence of culture. Mm-hmm. Already, but I think the big problem with the thinking uh, does the culture muck with the unconscious, and it's impossible, and it can't, and whatever. Mm-hmm. That's either or thinking, and right. I think that Stevens right to go to Judy Butler's term interimplication. People don't know how to think of that; they can only think additively, one plus one, or one you know kicks the other out, or you know it's either one or the other. Mm-hmm. Right? And there has to be a view in which we are pr- proposing. A simultaneity, and the simultaneity doesn't mean union, it doesn't mean unity, it can mean contradiction, it can mean um, non-relationship, but there's always at least two things going on at the same time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's striking because we could, you can imagine like the idea of the breakdown of triadic thinking into um, concreteness. Mm. Uh, but this is no different in a certain sense. Uh, it'd be hard to imagine the breakdown of the, of the relational unconscious into places where culture and mind are separate. Right. Follow, right. Following that. That's the same the model, kind sure. of breakdown oh, from triadic what? to a, you know, to a, um, a di- well, not exactly dyadic, but to a uh, dichotomous set of variables as opposed right. to multi-dimensional variability. Mm-hmm. This is like what Lynn Layton says in the delinking right. of mm. the psychic and the social, of the individual and society, that there's a delinking that happens, mm. that ha- always, that, uh, that in our hegemony happens, or even in our interpolative processes, mm-hmm. because there could be an interpolation of interimplication of both, always both. Mm-hmm. Always more than one. Always relationship between mm-hmm. ideas, persons, um, mind, culture. Mm-hmm. And we have a way of thinking that does a de-linking. And we think then we take that then as an account of reality. And in that either or way, there's only one account of reality. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Only one account left standing. Yes. Yeah. It's just that it's so interesting because in our field, we tend to take our ideas from snapshots of when things are unlinked. <laughs> so much that we don't imagine them linked. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's very, that's a really, can you elaborate on that? That That's a very interesting idea. Well, that's, you know, sort of like exactly as Muriel's saying, you know, we, we look at the breakdown of functioning or unlinking and take snapshots of it mm-hmm. and reify those snapshots yeah. Yeah. to the point that we may not, I mean, really, uh, that, that we lose track of the moment before they were delinked. Mm-hmm. And in a, in a certain sense, um, I suppose that moment may never exist, right? But... Mm-hmm. Uh, you could imagine, if you could imagine that the unconscious and culture were separate, it's, it's the result of a breakdown. Just in the same way that uh, um, a neurotic symptom is a snapshot of the breakdown of a, of a structure. Mm-hmm. It's not structure itself. Right. Right. You know, Stephen, I was thinking when you're using breakdown, I'm thinking about the self, you know, the cohesion, is it, notion of the breakdown product? Mm. So this, Not, like, this, this post-linking snapshot is like a breakdown problem. The delinked. Yes, yes is it, like it is. The product of a way of yeah. thinking or, or of a way of thinking that gets disturbed, gets disturbed by something that doesn't tolerate. Right, I agree. And I think you're right to point to Lynn Layton also, because then what Lynn does with that is shows how that serves the interests of yes. certain hegemonic forces and therefore it becomes to be as if mm-hmm. real. And you can then put that into a kind of Foucaultian sort of discursive thing, which also, by the way, is something that captures our whole group's imagination and mm-hmm. before you know it, you're not paying attention to anything but the broken bits. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I thought that I, when I opened the book, I expected to see Lynn Layton as a commentator. Uh, in uh, yeah, I was like, oh, oh, she's she seems to be almost here, but um, but not. She was one of our endorsers. Oh, I see. Okay, because yeah, her lovely endorsement that she gave us. Mm-hmm. She's Lynn is always with us. At least me, and I know a few yeah. of the other people in our group always with us in spirit. Ah, <laughs> yeah, no, she's very much a, a sort of, you know, a fellow a, a thinking and absolutely. yeah, a fellow traveler. Yeah, absolutely. Well, but also an you know an inspiration because she comes up with these ideas and she's been very um, uh, what's what's the word sort of you know persistent. Relentless, really, in her pursuit of, of changing this aspect of the discourse, this mm-hmm. either-or aspect. Right. That is really very, um, very predominant um, in uh, in sort of the in our profession um, at this point. I, you know, I actually was thinking as I was reading this that um, it's not it's not my impression. I don't know if you share this impression, but it's not my impression that um, analysts uh, working in um, Europe or South America are um, taking up this question of culture. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I always, I tend to think there's something very American about the relational school, and I think that something is very. I wonder if there's something very American um, about this this um, endeavor and this this sort of 
thinking through um, creating a, a, a more of a, I don't even know if the word is dialogue, but between psychoanalysis and thinking about culture. Um, any any thoughts about that? Um, I, I'm not sure. In the terms in which we put it, yeah, yeah it's sort of very American. But I think other people do. For example, I'm thinking of a, an Argentinian whose work I don't know that well, but whom our colleague um, A.L. Rosemarine and, and Adrian Harris are involved with. There's a woman in Argentina named Janine Puget mm-hmm. who's thinking about history mm-hmm. and psychoanalysis. Likewise, in Paris, Françoise Davlon and mm-hmm. Jean-Max Godier. They're mm-hmm. thinking about mind and history. Mm-hmm. So people are doing it, although not necessarily in kind of American terms. I think you can find people mm-hmm. here. Yeah, no, I, it's a really a fascinating question. It, um, but I think I agree with, you know, that really you can find people and, um, excuse me, I'm going to cough for one second. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes doorbells ring, you know, things happen. Sorry. <laughs> um, you know, in Italy, there's yeah. a huge... Uh, surge of interest in relational psychoanalysis. And there's a lot of really interesting work about culture um, uh, by someone named um, Vittorio Lingiardi, uh, who's, um, and, and there are a number of people writing about, uh, about culture in the way that we're writing about it. You know, not, in other words, not just as an attribute, but as a, right. uh, you know, a, whatever it is we think it is. But we're working what on seems that. Particularly, I know, I know, right? <laughs> it's so funny. But what's particularly American maybe about it is um, that we're sort of dissidents mm. um, about culture. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's a particularly funny thing. You know, in our group, there's a South African, uh, former South African, Israelis, mm-hmm. a Russian. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're, we're actually a very international group. I like to imagine myself Canadian, but, um, <laughs> but uh, I do. Okay. But, uh, no, cause I, it's, it's more like spiritual home, but, um, we, um, we all feel somewhat, uh, between cultures mm-hmm. and, and I wonder if that's not a particularly American problem. It, it, uh, I, I mean, I wonder about that. And I, um, you know, it just when I was reading it, I thought, well, this is just such an. It struck me as such an American book, even though I knew that many of the authors were not born here, but they choose to um, to live here. And um, the question of the question of culture. I mean, I, I was, you know, I was also, I, I had thoughts about like, well, the impact of like, you know, w- without uh, without identity politics. Like, I was thinking about the, you know, the eighties and and like all of these questions about um, I, culture and I and identity and and then um, the psyche um, and how we've, you know, obviously, I think people. In your in your group, and I I certainly have the sense you Muriel you know were influenced by the feminist movement, um, Stephen by you know like AIDS politics and you know gay gay rights stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean we've sort of um, these we're we're put in a position um, to think our way through these things. Um, but it's interesting. One thing I, I wondered: how does does the way in which you are? It's not just thinking. Thinking is too clumsy a word. But how does the way in which um, think, thinking about culture in the way in which you all have written about it in the book, how does it change or does it change um, analytic um, work and technique? Uh, I think that's, that's, a, that's a question. How, how does this, this thinking about culture have an impact on, on, um, on the work itself? You know, here's a, this is an interesting problem. 
since I come into this already thinking about culture, I don't know how it changes. Mm-hmm. I, from my own experience, I'm not aware. Mm-hmm. Of, oh, now I'm thinking culturally. I'm not aware of it because I always am anyway. Mm-hmm. Also, particularly for me, and I don't know how you sort of wrangle this, Stephen, I, um, I think I think about um, doing clinical work and thinking about culture on sort of, there's sort of like two kind of underground tracks. Uh, no, two tracks, and they sort of meet somewhere underground. But I don't, I don't have a conscious linkage of them. This may have to do with some of my own issues about thinking and writing about clinical material. I'm the only one in the book who doesn't write about clinical material. I have to say, and the the, the talent that the that these authors have for writing about clinical material and thinking about culture is extraordinary. Um, Stephen, I really think that all of you had really something special. There, there's a way in which you're immersed simultaneously in the clinical work and in the critique of um, ideas. Mm, thank you. They, That's they, sweet. They, well, it's not. It's true. <laughs> but you know, none of us, none of us had a background in ego psychology mm. or something. Mm-hmm. Um, none of us had a background. Uh, to none of us was the idea that that there was a psychic structure that was separate from culture. None of us ever had that idea. Mm. Um, And none of us, though we may have had bits of that in our education, none of us were ever comfortable with that idea. Mm -hmm. So I don't, and I I don't know how, so what does that look like clinically? And, you know, what do you do with that clinically? I, I, you know, I've often been in situations where, with supervisees where they think certain topics are off limit or they think are that those topics are irrelevant or that they're resistance and they're waiting for the material to come. And I don't know. I always feel steeped in the material. I never understood this notion of, you know, waiting for the material or <laughs> resistance to the material because everything, you know, you're always in it. So, I never really even, again, I never really got that idea. Like, well, so what do you do with this? Because it it feels to me like, as a student of mine once said, well, you know, when you get this relational idea, it makes it a lot harder. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Really? It does, because if you allow that so much is going on in so many dimensions, more than you can ever really figure out what to do with, really... Clinical work is really just a matter of selective attention, mm-hmm. um, you know, not getting it right. And what you select is so influenced by who you are mm-hmm. and so on and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> but the, this idea that there's so much more material than can be encompassed, it sounds like what you're saying, Stephen, is that with some of the supervisees, that's a very challenging notion. That somewhere there's an idea that we've got it and we should be able to encompass it all. Yes, rather you find that with students, yeah. Rather than being well, probably with colleagues. I mean, the comfort with excess, it seems to me, goes along with a premise of interpolation. The premise that we're always between things. That there's at least two things going on, and probably you know, seventy-eight mm-hmm. things going on, and that. 
um, there's more than in a way than we can know um, is, a, is a notion of excess. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. That's a comfort with that. Okay. Yeah. I'm not going to have this, you know, this is the Foucault degree, the single master narrative, you know? Right. Yeah. Going yeah. To add that what that means is that I have to be open to many possibilities, including many possibilities of knowledge. And the other thing I would say about this, this group by and large, although it's it's it, it's true, more true in some cases than others, is that the um, the all the authors are interdisciplinary. Mm-hmm. Olga, for example, very interested by um, um, what do you call it, um, Merleau-Ponty and um, phenomenology, mm-hmm. for example. You know, Orna and Al and philosophy and you, Stephen, you know, political and anthropology and philosophy and so on. Um, and that interdisciplinarity, I think, contributes to the richness of the group and the possibility, uh, richness of the book and the possibility of different kind of writing. Mm-hmm. And I think it's not so common among psychologists mm-hmm. to have that kind of interdisciplinarity. But I think it's really crucial because it's you know then that there are at least two, if not more, substantial ways that are of seeing the world that are co- equally cogent and substantially different. Mm-hmm. And then you, you're in a stereo, you know, you're, you're, you're in a stereo system. You, you have, um, you realize that there are multiple ways of thinking and then they inform each other, the different ways of thinking inform each other. So the inter- implication, but interdisciplinary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very, very interdisciplinary. I mean, the, 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 the way in which people are working and and thinking and uh, what they have access to, um, I I wondered about um, as I as I read the stories, I I kept thinking, um, what what is I, I I thought to myself, well, these analysts are working really hard. Yeah, not just you know, like, and and I'm thinking to myself in the in the clinic in the clinical setting, what am I? How am I working? Am I wor- really? Um, I mean, grasping a tremendous amount, but thinking a lot. Uh, I find myself, you know, my training is, is different and it is more of a, just about feeling, like what's the feeling in the room? What's the feeling in the room? And I was fascinated by um, the way in which bringing in um, these ideas for, for me as a clinician would take me away from feeling, <laughs> at least just, just that's, that's I think what it would do for me. Um, and I was Jessica Benjamin writes her chapter, um, a commentary on some of the on some of the stories, um, called "Facing Reality Together." And I thought, well, I don't know that I want to face reality. I don't know that most of my patients want to face reality. But um, it, I, it seemed that there was uh, an, an insistence, um, and there is this is a way to face reality. I mean, these these uh, theories that you are working with um, is that how you might understand a as a goal of, of analysis is being able to face reality together. Ah. Ah. I don't know. It's a huge I, question. Uh, you know, you can, you can, great question. you know, I don't know what reality is. I've lately been, I'm, spending, with you. Yeah. I'm wondering about that, but, um, <clears throat> you know, cause I think reality is in flux and constantly changing thing. Yeah. yeah. What I was thinking while you were speaking is that yeah, I remember, you know, one of the things I learned from my analyst was that feelings, uh, feeling, the register of feeling is 
just another register of reality in a certain sense. You know, there's no rest for the weary once you open yourself up to multiple registers Mm -hmm. of of understanding. And we just have to surf in as many of them as you can. Mm -hmm. Feelings are cultural. Feelings, uh, we think of them as sort of like nature. And I do sometimes when I speak to patients, I say, you know, it's like the wind or, you know, Sometimes they come and they go, but that's that's a serious metaphor because um, if you read uh, Clifford Geertz, for example, mm-hmm. or Alison Jagger, you know, an anthropologist, or Alison Jagger, who's a feminist philosopher, they make an argument that feelings and values and morals are interimplicated, that mm-hmm. feelings are filled with values. And values are filled with emotion. Geertz mm-hmm. does it by talking about the American flag or some symbol like that, as I recall. I don't know if you recall, Stephen. But, and I think that's a really important point. You're in feelings. You are in, in culture already. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just in a, having an email exchange with a colleague who's talking about spontaneity. And he's saying, well, we, what we call spontaneity is actually social, socially learned responses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had never thought about it that way before, but it's totally true. And then that's one of the things in analytic training that you have to, um, you sort of have to unlearn your ordinary spontaneous responses because you're thinking about a whole other set of things than, you know, that you're, than you're doing in, in kind of everyday life. Right. It's, but that's a very important sort of deconstruction mm-hmm. of emotions, as Stephen is saying, or yeah, you know, and I think like you know, Danelle Stern um, helps us see very clearly right, that feelings are just a way in which unformulated experiences begin to come to formulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't have a status right. separate from the rest of what we might think of as unconscious or unformulated. In in Don's words, you know, uh, life there. They're almost like um, I think we might think about feelings the way that old old classical Freudians thought about uh, uh, signal. Um, what is it called? Um, you know, uh, anxiety. Signal anxiety. You mm-hmm. know, where it's like a it's not the real thing, but it's a tip off. <laughs> if it br- it brings it to, to the mm-hmm. surface, so to. Mm-hmm. From primary to secondary process or whatever that is, but uh, I guess. But um, mm-hmm. you know, it's interesting. I've been actually kind of interested in this Japanese analyst Doi recently, mm-hmm. and um, and thinking about uh, because of a paper I read, but also a movie I saw that I think was called something like The Great Happiness Club, something like this. It was a movie about Japanese gigolo boys. Um, who primarily service Japanese um, women who are wealthy prostitutes. And um, what's particularly interesting about this is that they pay for each other's time to have the feeling of uh, desire that can never be acted upon or will not be acted upon. And um, what's making me go on this riff now and think about it now is to think about how cultural that feeling is. I don't think... Yes. Uh, we have that feeling. What, uh, fire that will never be acted upon? Well, we do have that <laughs> feeling, yes, of course. Oedipus, Oedipus. Oh, I know, no, 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 but not, that, not in, it's, this isn't in the Oedipal sense. Um, it's in a different sense. It's a kind of, um, it's a just 
I, it's called Ame, apparently. Yes, Ame. Yeah, Ame, yeah. sure. Yeah, Ame. Yeah, and we actually, all know we it. Have, we don't have this, in, I don't think. Do we? But we I don't. never heard it defined that way. Feelings that will never be acted upon. And, and, wa- and wanting to have the feeling that we could have a feeling that could never be acted upon is what you're describing. Yeah. A desire for an almost but not quite. Um, but that that's, a, that, that that's something that should be cultivated and nurtured and and. <laughs> I don't know. It's a very funny thing, but I, I, I was. Maybe it's I, internet I, dating. You know. I, I don't know. It might be. <laughs> it just strikes me that the feeling itself has a very cultural referent uh-huh. that cannot be summed up by the Oedipus narrative per se. Uh-huh. You know, I don't know how else to put it. Uh-huh. What were well, you going to say, Muriel? Well, I'm just saying the only the place I really know that from is from um, Elizabeth Young Brule's book called Cherishment. Mm-hmm. And she uses this notion of, am I, I mean, I, in some way it sounds like she's rediscovering Winnicott. Mm. Um, so it's, you know, there's always this sort of, the baby's expectation that it will be loved and cared for. Mm-hmm. I had never heard it put the way you put it. This is very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm afraid to say I don't know enough about it to elaborate. It's just, uh, except to say that I do think that, you know, working with culture, working with feelings, again, it's not, the, it's not a different thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a different way of describing it. Uh-huh. That's, a, that's interesting. Uh, we're almost out of time, and is there anything that you two wanted to say about the book or about the work in the book that we haven't gotten to? Um, the other thing that, that I want to emphasize is that this is not your usual anthology. This is a, this is a book that is more a conversation than a collection. It's not set up that way but when you read it mm-hmm. you will see that there is there are conversations taking place we I might say underground there's a kind of web of significance holding the whole thing together for example you have um, five of the authors each of them has three chapters mm-hmm. so there, there you will also see a development of thinking a development of clinical material, as in Stevens' cases, a development of the analyst experience, as in the case of Glennis Lobin. If you read all three, if you read the chapters in sequence, there are many different ways of reading this book. Oh, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could read chapters in sequence, you could read each section, you could read just the discussions. But underneath it all, there is a web of meaning that results from the years of work. Mm-hmm. that this group put in together to write these papers and to, to, to create and develop this new form mm-hmm. of clinical writing. Mm. That's really lovely and sweet. Mm-hmm. You know, could I add just to that? Sure, that of course. We're very fortunate uh, to work with Muriel. Um, and we really uh, all feel that Muriel gave us the license to, to pursue this. Mm-hmm. And in addition, I would want to, to add that, you know, one of the things that strikes me about the book as I, as I, whenever I flip through it, is those of, you know, we really all quite love one another uh, yeah. and have fallen in love with each other in the group through writing these stories together. Mm. And then when I think about it, it's sort of a parallel process to the work with the patients also, because Almost all of us are are quite in love with the patients we're writing about, yes. um, because there is this kind of very fluid exchange um, between us and between us and our patients, and there's a kind of creation of uh, 
that, that very much that Muriel, I think, fostered for all of us, the kind of a notion of analytic love mm-hmm. that you really see in this book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was really, um, it, was, it was very uh, moving um, the way, uh, Muriel, in the introduction, how you describe how you set the group up, which... Um, was that people were not to critique each other's politics, clinical theory, etc., but they were to help each other to complete the, complete the writing tasks that they wanted to complete. And I thought that was really a definition of, of giving space, uh, giving freedom, giving support. And, and you know, often in, in groups, one presents a case, it can be disastrous. You know, your ego is only so strong. And I had the sense that you created a framework that allowed people to explore what mattered to them and to be helped to further explore and, um, and make clear uh, that. And that comes through in the writing. Um, Yes, well, uh, thank you. I mean, I, 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 I actually am very proud of that way of um, conducting the group, and I do think that it made it possible for the, the original um, unique voices that each of these folks has to come to the fore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in its genuineness, then, it kind of forms, you know, an interesting symphony with all of the other different voices, a kind of postmodern symphony. Yep. This is, it's funny, this is the very first time I've done an interview with more than one person um, <laughs> for a new book in psychoanalysis. And uh, in fact, in the, I'm going to, um, I think I'm going to try and interview Lewis Kirshner and his book on um, Lacan and Winnicott uh, in the mm. next several months. And um, he has a lot of really interesting authors in there. And I'm thinking I'm going to get a, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to put together a group <laughs> and get them, get them all talking. Um, this is because it's, it's really terrific. And I, and the interaction between you two is, uh, is um, you know rich and and uh, fun to sort of um, get to experience. Uh, I think for for the listeners. Um, okay. So I've, I've uh, allowed us to go uh, three and a half minutes over our session, and <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> because I was having so much fun. You're corrupted by culture. <laughs> Interrupted by culture again. <laughs> Oh, so no, my work day is done. But um, I just wanted to thank you both uh, very much for um, for speaking with New Books and Psychoanalysis. And um, of course, keep us posted um, because you guys are pretty prolific. So uh, you have another book coming out. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Let us let us know. Okay, all for now. Thank Thank you so much. Thank you. It's great to do this. Thanks.